The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, good morning. How are we doing this morning? It's great to see you. Turn to Daniel chapter 5 today. And this is a long passage, so I asked our, our worship pastor, one of our worship pastors, Mark Rojas, if he would help me uh, by drawing some pictures. You're going to see some pictures on this middle screen as we go throughout the message today. And these are hand-drawn images by Mark Rojas. So um, I think when I asked him that, he said, uh, I'll do it under one condition. Don't ever ask me to do this again. <laughs> no, he didn't say that, but he was very gracious and allowed me to do that. And so when you see him next time, just make sure you tell him how great of a job he did. You'll see these images as they unfold throughout today's passage. And um, there are some Bible stories, I think, that have infiltrated our language and how we communicate. One of those would be David and Goliath. If I were at a football game and I were to say, it was David versus Goliath, most would know what that means. But today's story also has become part of our everyday language, and it's the, the title of today's message is The Writings on the Wall. And so recently I was listening to ESPN radio, and I um, heard about, they were talking about this uh, football recruit who was going to transfer from OU to A&M. Where are my Aggies at? Here we go. So he was going to transfer from OU to A&M, and the reason why he was transferring was because OU had recruited a player that was better than him in his position. And so the guy on the radio said he saw the writing on the wall, and so he transfers. If you've seen the more recent James Bond movie, the theme song, I, I'm not going to try to sing this. Um, this guy sings too high for me anyway. Uh, but he says the last part of the chorus says, for you I have to risk it all because the writing's on the wall. We see this phrase used all the time in our, in our world today. And when people use that phrase, what do they mean by it? Most of the time they mean it's a bad omen or there's a sense of foreboding or um, there's a glimpse of the future and it's not uh, pretty. And so today, in today's passage, we're going to see um, that it means the same thing here. This is Belshazzar as the new king of Babylon, and he is given a glimpse of the future by God, and it is not an encouraging picture. So turn to Daniel 5, and um, I want to show you, uh, first of all, why I love the book of Daniel, because Daniel and his friends are in a place, they believe in the one true God of Israel, and they're in a place where no one believes in the same God that they believe in. They're living in a pluralistic culture, and I think we can find a lot of parallels with Daniel in the world that we live in today. This book shows us how we can relate in a world that doesn't believe anything like we believe. And I think also whenever you and I, to give you some quick background, whenever you and I read the Bible, we tend to uh, read Daniel 4 and think it happened on Monday, and then read Daniel 5 and think Daniel 5 happened on Tuesday, right? But if you understand the background of this, of this passage, there's a 23-year gap between Daniel 4 and 5. Nebuchadnezzar has been dead for 23 years. So there's some background for you for this story. Um, now I'm going to read to you just a, a few passages, and we're going to summarize some, then read some more. So look with me in verse 1 of chapter 1. It says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, 
And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall become the third ruler of the kingdom. I'm going to summarize for you just verses 8 all the way down to 23. So these wise men are brought in. They can't interpret the vision. And the queen mother, this is Belshazzar's mother, she's down the hall. She comes into the room. She hears all the commotion. She comes into the room, and she reminds them of a man named Daniel. Then Daniel is summoned. Daniel is brought in, and he's brought before the king. And the king asks for an interpretation. And before Daniel gives the interpretation, though, he has some things to get off of his chest. So he reminds the King Belshazzar, he reminds King Belshazzar about King Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, you have forgotten what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. How God gave Nebuchadnezzar power, but then how Nebuchadnezzar got prideful because of that power, and God then humbled him for seven years in the wilderness. Then Daniel turns to Belshazzar and says, even though you knew the story of Nebuchadnezzar, you didn't learn a thing from it. You didn't repent. And so God is going to judge you as a result of that. Look down with me at uh, verse 24. <clears throat> this is the interpretation. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command. And Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Recently, I read an article that was titled, Christianity, the World's Most Falsifiable Religion. And at first I thought it was a negative thing. I thought they were saying that Christianity is to be proven false. But when I read the article, what he was really saying was that the, the, the faith of Christianity can be um, tested with history. In this book, there are real facts and real people and real events that can be tested with historical analysis. And he's comparing that to other religions where a guy just goes out in the woods, hears a vision from God or sees a vision from God and writes down some thoughts. Those can't be tested with historical analysis. They don't contain real people and real events. And so this is one of the quotes he says in the, the paper. He says, The central claims of the Bible demand historic inquiry as they are based on public events that can be historically verified. In contrast, the central claims of all other religions cannot be historically tested and therefore are beyond falsifiability or inquiry. They just have to be believed with blind faith. So he's saying that the Bible sticks its neck out to the test of historical analysis, and many times, all the time, it passes the test. And other religions simply don't make these kinds of claims. And for many years, scholars used 
Daniel 5 to say the Bible's not accurate. And here's how they did that. When you go from Daniel 4 to Daniel chapter 5, there seems to be two problems. Number one, verse 2 calls Nebuchadnezzar, refers to Nebuchadnezzar as Belshazzar's father. There is no historical evidence that Nebuchadnezzar was the literal father of Belshazzar. There are many kings between Nebuchadnezzar and then Belshazzar. But there's a way around this. In the Aramaic language, they had no word for grandfather or great-grandfather, so they used the word father to connote ancestor or predecessor. So that's how we handle that dilemma. The second dilemma that the scholars would bring up is they would say, um, there is simply no record of a man named Belshazzar being the king of Babylon ever. And these, this is the list of all the kings in Babylon from Nebuchadnezzar on down until the, the, the Persians and Medes took over the empire. I'm not going to try to read these names. But Nabonidus was the last one, and he was known as, this is the last king of Babylon. So how can you all say that Belshazzar was ever a king in Babylon? And so popular thought among scholars was that Daniel 5 is proof that you can't trust the Bible until 1853. In 1853, a man named John Taylor discovered these tablets when he was excavating in ancient Babylon. And here we learn about a man named Belshazzar. On these tablets, we learn that Nabonidus, who was the king of Babylon at the time, left for a long period of time and left his son, Belshazzar, in charge as a co-regent, co-king to Babylon. This is where Belshazzar enters into the picture. And until 1853, there was no record of Belshazzar ever ruling Babylon outside the Bible. So the Bible sticks its neck out to historical analysis, and it passes the test. It passes the test. So I want you to just take this this whole passage just scene by scene. Uh, The first scene we have, and I'll put Mark's first drawing up there. This is a scene of the party. And this is an insane party. This is, it says there are, there's a thousand people at this party. So you imagine this room holds about 1,200 people. Imagine 1,200, 1,000 people at one big party. And, and this is a, a big drunken feast. And it says that Belshazzar is getting drunk in front of the crowd. And as you know, when people start drinking, the wine begins to take over. And they do bold and stupid things, Right? So Belshazzar requests, he says, hey, we're having this party, but why don't you guys go get me the vessels from the, that we got from the temple in Jerusalem and bring them here, and we're going to drink out of those vessels. Now, I'm, sitting, I'm an inquiring mind, so I'm wondering, okay, most, when people are drinking, they usually tend to care less and less and less about what they're drinking out of, right? Usually, you've heard of spring break? I mean, they'll go to a funnel, they'll go to a traffic cone, it doesn't matter. Like, they'll just, they'll find something. So why is he making this declaration to go get these vessels from the Jerusalem temple, from the temple that they got from the temple in Jerusalem? And the reason is this. This is an act of defiance. It's an act of arrogance. He's, he's saying, I'm going to take the vessels that we got from the temple there in Jerusalem, I'm going to pour the wine in there, I'm going to toast our gods with these vessels that were meant to work for the, for the Israelites to worship their God. In ancient warfare, they would take things out of the temple, and this was their way of saying, 
our gods can beat up your gods. Our gods are more powerful than your gods. So Belshazzar takes this further than Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar just stole the vessels. Belshazzar says, we're going to use those vessels and we're going to toast the gods of Babylon and show how weak the God of Israel truly is. This is an act of pride and arrogance and defiance against the God of Israel. But the bigger question is, why is he throwing this party? What is causing him to throw this massive feast with all these people? What you may not know is that Cyrus, who was the Persian emperor at the time, he had defeated the Babylonian army days before, and now the Persians are outside the city gate. And Babylon has thick walls. They have 20 years' worth of food stored up. But their army has been defeated at this point. And there's a chance that the king and all the people of the city, they're just living in fear. They know what's coming or what could potentially be coming. So some think that Belshazzar is throwing this feast to rally the city, to remind them that, hey, we're going to be okay. It's, we're we're going to be just fine. Like, we're still powerful. We're still Babylon. We've got thick walls. We've got 20 years' worth of food stored up within these walls. But these people, you can sense their fear. They're scared about what's going to happen to them. I think Belshazzar, he does the very thing that you and I tend to do whenever we are faced with our own mortality. And that is, he turns to pleasure. He turns to pleasure. He, he wants to find a way to kill the pain. And so he wants to hide from the reality of death. A guy named Ernest Becker, who's actually not even a Christian, summarized it with this point. He said, modern man is drinking and drugging himself out of awareness, or he spends his time shopping, which is the same thing. When I first read that quote, I thought, it really should say, or she spends her time shopping, right? But then I started thinking, well, you know, I mean, because you don't typically hear guys say like, you know, hey, hey, bro, you want to go to the mall? Help me kill the pain of life, right? That's not what typically happens. But then I began to think, actually, you know, sorry to stereotype things that way, but when you think about it, guys still shop, right? They just buy bigger things. They buy the boat. They buy the big guns. They buy the bigger stuff, right? And so we all have ways of, of trying to turn to pleasure, turn to things, to try to turn off this reality that we're mortal, to turn off this feeling of I'm human or the end is near. I think all of us can agree that whenever we, have, we experience hardship in life, we usually go one of two directions. We either turn real reflective, which is a good place to turn, or we turn to pleasure, finding ways to try to kill the pain of what's about to happen to us. And this, I think, is where Belshazzar is and where the whole city is um, in this story. I want to go to scene two. This is scene two. This is the, a picture of, actually a picture of uh, Rembrandt uh, painted this back in 1635. Another example of just the way in which this story has been a part of popular culture, even artistic culture um, back then. And um, unfortunately, I don't have a Rembrandt, but I have a Mark Rojas. And so Mark, he did this uh, drawing here. And I forgot to tell him, though, that Aramaic actually goes from um, right to left instead of left to right. But um, that's my fault. I didn't mention that to him. Don't hold that against him. And, uh, but this large human hand appears and right writes this message on the wall, and in one second, all the bravado fades. 
All of Belshazzar's bravado and arrogance and pride, just look what he becomes. Look at verse 6. It says, then the king's color changed. Have you ever gotten so scared that your color was just flushed out of you? The king's color changed. His thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. So he loses his color. He loses his strength. And with all of that goes all of his bravado. Everything just gone in one second. And in the Aramaic, the actual Aramaic words, this actually means the joints of his loins were loosened. And in English, that means he had to change his pants. That's my interpretation anyway. And in his fear, so in his fear, he's so scared, he calls all the wise men of Babylon around him and he offers them purple robe and gold chain and make them the third ruler of the kingdom. But no one can interpret the vision. And the queen mother, she doesn't like the party, so she's down the hall. And she comes running down the hall and she hears all this commotion. And, and as she comes running down the hall, she hears all this noise and now she arrives in front of the king. And this is most likely the mother of Belshazzar. Uh, If not that, maybe the grandmother of Belshazzar. And she's older, she's wiser. She remembers a man named Daniel. And so look down with me at verse 11. It says, There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. I want you to observe just the words that she uses to describe Daniel. She uses words like, Light, understanding, wisdom. She noticed something different about Daniel. You know, we've used the expression um, in this series that Daniel didn't just survive in Babylon, he actually thrived. And I think as a culture, we can learn something as believers, as we try to live out our faith in the culture that we live in, I think we can learn something from Daniel because it seemed like there was just something that was winsome and persuasive And something just different about him as he lived in that culture that that didn't believe how he believed. We saw last week how Nebuchadnezzar was influenced greatly by him. God used Daniel to influence Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar repented. And this queen, this this pagan queen, doesn't even probably know who, who this God is in the way that Daniel does. She uses words like, this is a man of light, understanding. And wisdom. And I respect him. And this was just personally convicting to me because I started thinking, I wonder if, if unbelievers looked at me or us as a church or us as Christians, if we asked them, what words would you use to describe Christians? Would they use words like light, understanding, wise, in the way this queen referred to Daniel? Because Daniel believed in one God, but he had to relate to a culture that believed in many gods. And I think this is where we find ourselves today in our world, where we live. But the question becomes, how do we relate to those around? How How do they view us as they think about us as believers? Russell Moore wrote a book called Onward. If you've not picked up his book, Onward, I would highly recommend it. He says this quote, he says, The church now has the opportunity to bear witness in a culture that often does not even pretend to share our values. This is the kind of world that Daniel lived in. That is not a tragedy since we were never given a mission to promote values in the first place. 
but to speak instead of sin and of righteousness and judgment of Christ and his kingdom. Sometimes it just seems like Christians expect non-Christians to act like Christians before they become Christians. Do you agree with this? Do you, do you see what I'm trying to communicate this morning? That sometimes I think as Christians we can expect unbelievers to adopt our values before they even come to know our God. And, and we forget that the gospel has to do its work. Like we're, the, the Great Commission is to make disciples, which implies they come to know Jesus, the Holy Spirit transforms them. And, and as I look around at myself, but also our, our Christian culture, it seems like sometimes we just want the culture to behave rather than be saved, right? Just keep your sin away from us. Just keep your sin out of our, out of our mix. And, and I think sometimes we, we have a hard time relating to the culture the way Dana related to his culture, and the culture doesn't see us as people that are full of light and wisdom understanding, and I understand that there's an element to where, you know, Christ talks about, yeah, they're going to hate you for money. I get that. But I think sometimes we're missing something where we don't look at someone like Daniel and think, hey, what can I learn from him? As I think about how to relate to the culture around us. But this queen, she seems to get there's something different about this man. He's full of something that um, Daniel was wise and persuasive and winsome and how he went about carrying, him, carrying himself in the culture in which he was a part of. I want to summarize again for you just verses uh, 13 to 29. Daniel's brought before the king. The king asked for an interpretation. But Daniel doesn't just come out and say it. He wants to get, get some things off his chest first. And so Daniel begins to recount the story of Nebuchadnezzar. He tells the king how Nebuchadnezzar's pride, power led to pride which then led to him being humbled for seven years. And then Daniel then turns his words to Belshazzar. In fact, um, if you look down at verse 17, I'll have this on the screen for you, but look at your Bibles in verse 17. Because people believe that Daniel was like in his 80s at this point, that he's become like a grumpy old man, grumpy old prophet. And he looks at Belshazzar in verse 17, and he says, the, the king's offering him all these things, and he says, let your gifts be for yourself. I'm not going to take your gifts. I'll, I'll interpret this thing for free. So Daniel is, is, has no patience for Belshazzar. And look down at verse 22 and 23. Daniel says, And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. So when he says, you knew all this, what's he talking about? He's talking about the story of Nebuchadnezzar. He's saying, even though you knew about Nebuchadnezzar, you refused to repent like Nebuchadnezzar. So I want you to catch what Daniel's communicating here when he says this. He's saying, Belshazzar, you should have known this was coming. You should have seen the writing on the wall before you saw the writing on the wall. You should have seen this coming, Belshazzar. And there's one thing that one theme that runs through this whole passage, 4 and 5, and it's the theme of pride and humility. We saw last week with Nebuchadnezzar, the theme of pride, him being humbled. And I want to give you a definition this morning of pride. Pride is failure to see 
that everything you have and everything you are is a gift of grace. Pride is failure to see that everything that I have is a gift of God's grace. Just think for a moment all the things in our lives that cause us to be prideful. Maybe you're really smart. Maybe you're super fast. You're a great athlete. Maybe you can make lots and lots of money. Think of how often we take those kinds of things, and we have what I call a me file in our brains, right? When someone gives us a pat on the back or gives us praise or glory, we have a me file. We put that comment in the me file, and we act like, I did that. That's right, I did that. I mean, just think of how foolish it is for someone who's a great athlete, who's super fast, um, to actually gain pride from that. When God is the one who created them, God is the one who gave them that ability. Pride, pride is always a failure to see that everything you are and everything you have is the gift of his grace. This is what pride is. And then you and I are never going to know how to deal with pride until we understand one truth, and it's this. Pride is the sin behind every other sin. If there's one thing I harp on with my students all the time, it's this truth. And that is, when you and I confess and repent, you can't just deal with the sin on the surface. So yeah, you know, lie, cheats, those are external sins, yes. But those things are tied back to the root of pride. And every single sin you and I commit that's external has a root drawn back to it that's prideful. Pride is the root of every sin that you and I commit. And the reason why this is important is if you and I don't go to God and seek and confess to him and and repent from not just the external sins, but also the internal pride in our heart, we will never understand what it means to really grow in his grace. And so pride was the sin of Nebuchadnezzar. It was the sin of Belshazzar. And this, of course, is a sin that you and I struggle with every day of our lives. And in this passage... Daniel points his old man finger right at Belshazzar, and he says, you knew the story of Nebuchadnezzar, and you did not repent. This reminds me of a passage in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, where Paul writes to the Gentiles, he says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So Belshazzar knew the story of Nebuchadnezzar. Here, Paul is saying that everyone has some, at least superficial, knowledge of God, that there is some kind of a God out there, and everyone knows something about God. But when you you and I turn our back on that reality, that truth, and don't worship him and honor him and obey him as God, what happens? Look at the, the trajectory of this passage. He says, When you and I do that, our foolish hearts become dark. And so all this darkness had crept in because Belshazzar had chosen, he refused to look at Nebuchadnezzar's story and learn from that and repent from it himself. And so now his life is full of darkness. He's become a fool. It's what happens to you and I when we turn our back on God's truth. Sin begins to eclipse the truth of God and we have dark hearts. We have dark hearts. And this is where Belshazzar found himself. Look at Daniel chapter 5, verse 23. Verse 23. He says, And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. There's some amazing wordplay happening in this passage. 
It's like when Daniel says the phrase, in whose hand is your breath, it's like he's saying, you think you can wrap your grubby little hands around God's vessels and praise your idols. God has his hands wrapped around your breath. In a moment, he can just snuff it out. He's that powerful. And so Belshazzar is, is learning from Daniel who this God is. And I want to draw your attention to another phrase in this passage, verse 23. Daniel reminds him, I'll remind you that your idols that do not see, hear, or know. <clears throat> there's a theme we see all through the Old Testament. Um, if you look at any passage on idolatry, there's this theme that we come across, and it's this theme of we become what we worship. And we see it again in Psalm chapter 115, verses 4 to 8. We become what we worship. So when Daniel says to him, these idols do not see, hear, or know, I'm going to remind you that you, Belshazzar, no longer see, hear, or know. You become what you worship. You become just like these things. And Psalm 115 says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. If you and I worship things that aren't meant to give us life, we become lifeless. If you and I worship money, money was never meant to give us ultimate meaning in life. We become lifeless. If you and I worship career, career was never meant to give us life ultimately. We become lifeless. If you struggle with just going on the line at night and downloading images that are sexual in nature, you and I become just as hollowed out as those images on a screen. We become just like what we worship. And I think this is the truth he's trying to remind uh, Belshazzar when he says, I'll remind you, your idols, they do not see, hear, or know, just like you, Belshazzar. This is where you find yourself when you and I worship things that are not ultimately meant to give us life. And this brings us to now the interpretation and finally, Daniel interprets the vision, and he says, your days are numbered, you've been weighed and found wanting, and your kingdom's going to be split in two between the Medes and the Persians. In other words, Belshazzar, the party's over in more ways than one. And so the question becomes, what do you and I do with this story? What do we do with this, this crazy story in Daniel chapter 5? I think it raises an important question for us, and the question is this. We see Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar gets prideful. He gets arrogant. He gets confronted by God and Daniel. He is then warned and then sent to the wilderness for seven years. Like, God, like, puts Nebuchadnezzar in time out for seven years. You go think about your sin, Nebuchadnezzar. Then he finally comes back. He finally repents. So Nebuchadnezzar seems to have all this time. Belshazzar gets prideful, and it's, you're dead. Now, I know that could be an oversimplification. I know we talked about how Belshazzar knew the story of Nebuchadnezzar. We discussed this before. But maybe Belshazzar 
saw God's patience with Nebuchadnezzar, heard the story about that, and maybe he just thought, I'll be okay. God's not going to do anything to me. And so I want you to look now at Romans chapter 2, verse 4. I think this reminds me of Romans 2, 4, because it reminds me of a passage that um, I think is important for this passage in Romans, uh, or in Daniel. And Paul is now talking to the Jews in Romans 2, 4. He says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Sometimes God gives people a lot of time to repent, except for when he doesn't, right? And so what does this mean? I think for us this means that maybe you're not following Christ, maybe you are a believer, maybe you say you're a Christian, but if you're not walking in obedience to him, maybe life's going pretty well. Maybe you got a good bank account, you got a good family, you got a good house, you got a good job, you have great kids, you have a great wife, you have lots and lots of health, things are just going really well for you. But Romans 2.4 reminds us that these are God's kind acts to us. God's kindness should bring us to repentance. His blessings should bring us to acknowledge Him as God. I think most of us think of repentance only happens when God's wrathful and angry. That does happen. But Romans 2.4 is clear that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance, to confess and turn away from idolatry and turn towards Him. And so I don't know where you are in your life, but um, just like, maybe just like Belshazzar, maybe his kindness runs out tonight. Maybe it runs out next week, next month, I don't know. But his kindness is meant to draw you back to him and lead you to a place of repentance. Sinclair Ferguson says this quote. He says, To know that God is gracious and yet not turn from sin in light of that grace is to fall under his righteous judgment. And I think the writing on the wall was this warning for Belshazzar. And I think many of you here in the room, you can think back on a time when God gave you some writing on the wall. When God sent someone to you, someone who loves you and cares for you, and God sends someone to you and says, why are you walking this direction? Why are you walking away from Christ? Repent and turn and walk back towards Christ. You've seen some writing on the wall, and for some of you, this book serves as the writing on the wall. God has given us some writing on the wall in which he is calling us back to himself. And here's the reality Belshazzar didn't get much time to think about it. I don't know how much time we all have to think about it. So we cannot presume on the graciousness and forgiveness of God. We can't take advantage of his grace and see it as a ticket to walk away from him and live in disobedience, thinking that it'll be okay. It'll be okay. I want to draw your attention to Daniel chapter 5, verse 27. One last verse. He says, you have been weighed. This is the interpretation of the word tekel in this vision. 527, he says, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And this is not just true of Belshazzar. This is true of us as well. A balance was used in weighing payments 
If a payment didn't meet a standard, it was rejected. And this passage serves as a reminder that apart from Christ, all of us have been weighed in the balances and we are found wanting. And I think this is a truth that even someone who doesn't claim to follow Jesus, I think can still understand that reality. I want you to watch this. uh, It's an older clip, but a clip of Tom Brady from many years ago describing his success. Let's go ahead and watch this clip. Tom Brady, the quarterback of the New England Patriots, is not only one of the NFL's best players, he's one of the NFL's best stories. At the tender age of 28, he's already won three Super Bowls, an accomplishment that ranks him with some of the best quarterbacks ever to play the game. I mean, I'm making more money now than I ever thought I could ever make playing football. (laughs) But with all that money, fame, and career accomplishments, we were surprised to hear this from him. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and, and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life is me. I thank God. It's got to be more than this. What's the answer? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I think all of us, can, if we're honest, we can understand this fact, this reality. We can sense it, that we are, apart from Christ, we all have the sense that if you weigh our life, there's just something missing. It's just incomplete. There's just something that's this, this void, this missing, if we weigh our accomplishments, weigh our lives. And at first, I think this might sound like the most depressing thought imaginable, that you and I are, are weighed and found wanting and that we, we truly deserve the wrath of God the way that Belshazzar was given the wrath of God. And that might sound like the most depressing truth imaginable until you realize that this reality is the very entry point into the most joy-giving, life-inducing idea imaginable. And the idea is this. You and I have to allow the reality of God's wrath to drive us back to the place where we see God's mercy, the cross. I think you and I tend to pit God's wrath and his mercy and grace against each other. And we've got to understand that um, the reality of his wrath is what drives us into his grace. And you and I will never understand the weight of his grace and mercy until we understand the weight of his wrath and the weight of our own sin and what we're truly owed apart from Christ. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for uh, being a God who, even though you weigh us and you find us wanting, we know that in Christ, when Christ's righteousness is applied to us, Father, we know that you um, approve of us, Father, and our identity is found in you, Father. We pray this morning, Lord, for um, all of us, whether someone's a a believer or not a believer, that this truth would become evident in their life this morning, God. We pray that If there's anyone here who does not truly know you, we pray that they would come to know you this morning, knowing that their life has been weighed and found wanting, and they can only be approved of in you and your work for us on the cross. We pray that there would be people that understand that for the first time this morning. We also pray for us as believers that we're living in, in places of idolatry, living in places of shame, living in places of finding our identity apart from you, Father. We pray that you'd help us to understand that our life is nothing apart from you, Father. 
We pray all these things in your name this morning. Amen.